Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is a show from 2016, and there are several reasons why we are re-airing it today. The, the one that makes us especially proud is that there's something called the Prindy Awards, the Public Radio News Director Awards. Uh, they are kind of the Emmys for shows like ours. Uh, we were lucky enough to take a first place this year in the Prindy's for this particular show. And, and I think one of the reasons that we did win this award for this particular show is very much connected to our philosophy about doing a show like this one. Uh, I About once a year, maybe more often, we get approached about an idea that we know is going to be difficult. We know probably almost all the shows that are approached about this idea are not going to do it because it's just too problematic. Um, there are little bells going off in our heads telling us, don't do this show. And so that makes us, of course, want to do the show. So we were approached by Wally Lamb and one other person uh, to tell the story of a young woman who wound up in prison for the murder of her newborn baby and, and to tell that story in a way that it hadn't been told. Uh, and we were also told that she would be willing to talk to us. So all of those things happened. That's the show that you're about to hear. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more after the next break. We're doing an unusual show uh, today for us. Uh, maybe it would be an unusual show for anybody. We're exploring a, a topic that's uh, very sensitive in society. It's a, the topic of neonaticide. Uh, we are uh, going to be talking to somebody that you may have seen in the news, but maybe not have gotten to know. Uh, I think this is the kind of story that people read about or hear about or see on television and have kind of a knee-jerk reaction to, but don't really attempt to understand it. Uh, today, we're going to try to understand a little bit more about what this phenomenon is. To help us do it, uh, in studio is Panna Krom, former inmate at York Correctional Institute in Niantic until quite recently, uh, and the newest member of the Safe Haven Working Group. Also in the studio with me is uh, Doug Hood, a former physician's assistant in neurology at Yale, pursuing a career investigating criminal injustice cases. Uh, joining us in a little while, Michelle Oberman. She's a professor of law at Santa Clara University of Law and the co-author with Cheryl Meyer of When Mothers Kill, Interviews from Prison. We are going to tell you some of the story of Panna Krom. As I say, if you've been watching the news or reading the newspapers, maybe you think you know it already. But we're also going to talk about this phenomenon. It, it really maybe is not exactly what it appears uh, or what your automatic reflux uh, re or reflex, excuse me, told you that it was. First of all, uh, I want to say uh, hello to Panna Krom. Welcome to our studios. Thank you for having me. You were recently released from prison. Um, tell us, how, how long were you at York Correctional? I was at York for a little over nine and a half years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was like nine years. It's almost 10, right? Nine years. Almost 10. Yeah. In January, it would have been 10. And what, what day did you get out? 
I got out September 30th, mm. 2016. Yeah. And Doug Hood, I've read this story several different ways, and I, I'm mildly confused about the terminology. It wasn't a pardon. It was more of a commutation, and it was based on clemency. I don't know. Can you tell us just the quick the mechanics of how this works? Yeah. She got out on a clemency, um, and they call it a commutation. Both of those mean shortening of the sentence. It's a system device outside the court system where she her case is reviewed by a panel. It's a government-appointed panel, and they look at all aspects, including listening to the uh, prosecutor. They look at her file. And she obviously had a stellar file and decide whether uh, she they will grant a clemency. There's only been four granted in the last 30 years, so it's pretty rare. I'm going to tell Panda's story in a second. It's a difficult story for her to tell, but I, I want to introduce you to the audience a little bit more, Panna. You're the daughter of Cambodian refugees? Yes. Uh, your parents fled the regime of Pol Pot, I'm assuming? Yes. And how, how long have they, they been in the country here? Um, they've been in the country for a little over 30 years now. I think I read in one of the emails, I, I think it might have been from Wally Lam, not from Doug, that your father was, was he a ruby miner in Cambodia? Yes. Yeah. Also a kickboxer when he was young? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to quickly summarize the facts of the case. Panna became pregnant in 2006. She was 16 years old at the time. She hid her pregnancy from her family. She self-delivered her baby alone in her bathroom and committed neonaticide by drowning after the birth. She then put the baby's body in a closet. She was arrested, signed a confession, and pled guilty to a first-degree manslaughter. She was sentenced to 18 years at York Correctional Institute. As we just said, she'd served just under 10 years before receiving that act of clemency uh, recently. Maybe you, you can say a little bit about what the clemency means to you, Panna, or, or at least how you feel as though you qualified for it. You, you had said at the time of sentencing that you were going to do a number of things while you were in prison. You were going to use your time in prison as productively uh, and, and profitably for society as possible. So what did you do? I participated in as many groups and programs um, that I could to help myself um, and help others to get the help that I needed and, and guide others that were maybe going through the same situation in terms of having to be in prison. I also got involved with uh, in education courses, so I took college courses um, to keep myself busy. I stayed out of trouble. I considered every action before I made it. I knew I, I finally had to do the right thing you know, once I, once I entered York. Um, yeah, we should say that uh, I think you completed, well, first of all, you had to complete a high school degree, right? You weren't quite there yet. Right. Um, I was a senior when I went into York, so I had to complete a few more credits to receive my high school diploma, and which I did my high school in Danbury, sent my diploma to me there. And, and yeah, so and then after that, I think, what, six semesters through the Wesleyan Prison Education Program? Yeah, six semesters. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about what it's like to be out, uh, what kind of road you think you're going to walk. But maybe, Doug, before we do that, you can talk a little bit about why you pursued clemency. I think you got involved in this case in 2012. Yeah, that's right. I, I realize we're kind of the odd couple here. We were working for the same thing on, on each side of the wall. I first heard about her case in... Uh, yeah, it was about 12, 2012, 2013 when I was up at Hartford at a hearing and a young lawyer went up and she said, you know, the story of Panacram is one of sadness and shame. And I was intrigued with that and I realized that she's at York where I was volunteering. So I was able to make a, a connection with her there. 
And, and one of the things that you started to do was to look at the history of neonaticide cases. These are cases where the baby uh, dies really at the time of birth in the first 24 hours. It's defined legally a couple of different ways. And Connecticut really hadn't had a lot of prosecutions for this. What did you find? Yeah, that's right. Well, first I was struck by her sentence, 18 years. And so I was curious, is, is that lengthy or is it a lax sentence? And so I kind of looked to see what the other cases were, and there there weren't any. So I went on kind of a journey around the state, digging up all the cases I could. I found 11 cases, but what I was particularly interested in were the teenage cases that were similar to hers, because this is a whole different profile. And I found a total of six, including hers. And tell us about the sentences for the other ones. Well, the other ones, uh, out of those other five, Two of them were never charged. One never, hers was suspended. She never went to prison. One got seven months, and one got 18 months. And then Pontus stood out at 18 years. Yeah, and we'll be talking uh, more with Michelle Oberman about how that mirrors uh, national statistics. There's even one study that our forensic psychologist did. Who, she looked at 300 cases and couldn't find anybody who'd spent more than a night in prison. Um, so in, here in Connecticut, our numbers are maybe even higher than what you'd find in other places. She was looking at, I think, both the U.S. and Britain in, in that study. But uh, obviously, this is a much longer sentence. And Doug, you know, going back, I mean, you obviously weren't present at the time of trial, but I mean, was it, is it clear to you why this was the case? Well, it largely comes down to the prosecutor and the judge and your resources, mm -hmm. you know, whether you've got a lawyer with you when you're arrested. And she didn't. Mm -hmm. She had a, they, when the lawyer picked up her case, they had a signed confession. Mm -hmm. Panna, um, I've read a lot about neonaticide to get ready for this show. One of the things, one of the patterns that we often see in these cases, particularly with very young uh, mothers like you, is that this is a person often who has had no discipline problems uh, in her life prior to this. She is almost the stereotypical good girl. Uh, it's not as though she's been, you know, causing a lot of trouble or, or anything like that. I get the feeling that that was kind of you as well, right? Right. If anybody had known you in high school uh, as, you know, a sophomore or a junior, I'm, I'm guessing you would have been one of the least likely people in your high school in most people's eyes to wind up in prison. Right. Well, so what's that? I want to talk just a little bit about being in prison then, being kind of a stereotypical good girl, uh, stay out of trouble kind of person. Suddenly you're in a prison population. It might be kind of a scary idea uh, for a lot of people. What was it like for you? How did you get along with people? When I went in, I was very intimidated. I didn't know what to expect um, from prison. I've never been exposed to prison in my life. I didn't even know your correctional even existed. But when I went in, I was very scared, um, especially because I had a very high-profile case. So I, you know, assumed the worst. I assumed that um, the women would, you know, be extremely mean to me and, and call me names constantly. And, you know, initially, it, it that was the case um, in the beginning, but I just knew that I, despite what others thought about me or the things that they said about me, I knew I just had to focus on myself and grow. And like I said before, actually do the right thing this time. But prison itself was, was very daunting because, I mean, the thing that I always say that I you know, missed out on the most was being with my family mm -hmm. um, and knowing that I, I let them down by doing something so irresponsible and I essentially, you know, hurt others in the process. So 
being in that in that environment was just very hard. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I try to take full advantage of every opportunity that they offered to the women over there. Because of the crime you were in for, I would imagine not everybody, even the prison population, was necessarily sympathetic to you. Did you have to be in protective custody at all while you were there? I was in protective custody, yes, when I first went in for about two years. And then after that, I integrated into general population. I also gather that you did uh, make some close bonds, including with your cellmate. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I did. Um, it's very hard to trust people in general, but I did form a very close bond with my cellmate, um, and she guided me through my incarceration. She had been at York longer than I had, and she you know, kind of taught me the ins and outs. Um, and she was my coworker. She was my cellmate. We were in college classes together, so... She was someone that I followed um, because I knew that, you know, she stayed out of trouble and she did what she had to do to go home at the end of the day. So There's a strange twisted irony to this. In some ways, uh, the history of neonaticide often involves young women who were are in one way or another culturally isolated. Um, what's one of the reasons it seems to happen? You also were alone and isolated uh, at the time of your confession. You weren't supported anyway by an attorney the way a lot of young American kids probably would be. Uh, then you went into prison, which was also uh, a very isolating kind of experience. And now you're out. I would imagine that's a little bit isolating, too, just in the sense of you've missed 10 years of cultural history. I, I would assume that when you went into prison, that you didn't ever have a smartphone because pretty much nobody did in 2006. Uh, I mean, that's just an example, right? Right. I mean, coming out into the free world, as we would call it, it's very overwhelming. I'm extremely grateful and extremely thankful to finally be home. But there are a lot of things that I have to learn, and I do feel left out. Sometimes because I don't know what anything is Um, and it's been less than a week um, Mm. since I've been out. So I'm still just trying to take it one day at a time. Technology itself is extremely advanced and that even can be um, a little overwhelming because I don't even know where to start with like smartphones or Facebook, Twitter, stuff like that. Right. So anytime someone says something about, I don't know, Facebook, Twitter, anything that has to do with social media, I have no idea what anyone's talking about Mm -hmm. because we didn't have that inside the prison. Right. And I understand even like the other day your family was laughing at a joke that was a cultural reference. It was, Yeah, it was. Um, I guess it was about a video on the Internet and they just were all just laughing and, and kind of enjoying themselves. And I was kind of like sitting back like I don't know what they're talking about. So but and I don't want to, you know, on a smaller scale, it, it seems a little, uh, kind of minute um, to, to say something like this. Mm. But like, I just don't want to be a burden sometimes and, and ask them like. What are you talking about? Because mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't want to ruin the moment or something. But um, so I'll just kind of like go along with it. Um, and I'll pro- I'll usually like pull one of my cousins or someone to the side and ask them, what are you guys talking about? What were you guys laughing about? But it's it's very hard right now um, just trying to trying to adjust to being free. You were just 16 years old when you got pregnant. You were yeah. just turned 17 when the baby delivered. So your adult life basically has been spent in prison. I would assume that um, you probably feel more close or have more in common anyway with the women that you knew at your correctional facility than anybody else. That's who you were with for 10 years. Right. I don't know if you want to, if you can elaborate on that at all, but I mean, I guess that, that means in some ways you're looking back at them and thinking, well, that's the last group of people who really, it's the only group of people who ever understood me as an adult young woman. Right. To me, I mean, honestly, when I went in, I had no idea what to expect. So 
I was expecting the stereotypical um, what you see in Hollywood movies or, or on TV um, where prison's very sensationalized and it's very violent. But, you know, I met some of the most genuine women behind bars. You know, a lot of them did not judge me based on my crime. They just took me for who I was and, and judged me based on how I treated other people. Um, and, and I reciprocated the same to them as well. So, And I always say it, it's ironic to say that it was, it was very sad to leave prison because I had to leave many friends behind because, you know, from day one when you go and you're like, I just want to go home. But it was a catch-22 of sorts the day that I left. So, Tell us about Project Rap. Project Rap is a group that uh, is run by the facility itself um, where high school students from all over Connecticut visit the prison. They take a tour of the facility, and then at the end of their visit, they sit down with a panel of about four inmates, and I was one of those inmates. We basically just tell our stories on what brought us to prison, and then they ask us questions. And the four of us each had different crimes so that they can kind of get a feel of what kind of crimes or what types of crimes brought the women to York. And we were various ages, various ethnicities. So interacting with the high school students was my most passionate project that I was a part of. Why do you think you were so passionate about it? What do you think that did? Um, I felt like I could connect with teenagers, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I went in at 17, so that's, that's all I knew. You know, people my age who never went to prison, so people that I knew from high school, they're all established. They all graduated college, have families. They know who they are. Again, I went in at 17, so I kind of, my growth kind of was stunted. So I, at times, still felt like I was 17, and I felt like the only people that, you know, I could connect with were teenagers, even though, I mean, I I could have been 21 or 22 at the time. And I just feel like, I needed to get my message across to the younger audience who, you know, neonaticides, the demographic in which neonaticides occur. And I just needed to tell them and connect with them and and let them know that there are options out there that I didn't know about um, and that it can happen in anyone's community. It's not stereotyped to be in in certain communities. It, It can happen anywhere. And Doug, um, as somebody who's working a lot now uh, in prison populations, I think, you know, she just used the word demographic. And I think this is a story of demographics in a lot of different ways. And I would assume you see that in this case and in other cases that like just in terms of the sentence you get and where you wind up, Panna's sentence bears essentially no resemblance to anybody else in Connecticut any of a comparable age committing the same offense. So a lot of this has to do with the prosecutor you get. Stephen Sedensky, the prosecutor in this case, seemed very eager for this to be a big sentence. It's the judge you get. But I think it's also maybe like who you are and the background you come from. As, as you look at other cases around the, that prison, Doug, and, and, and Panna's already nodding as I say that, I assume dem- demography is destiny to a certain degree. Yeah, I, you know, one can certainly attribute a lot to that. I, you know, the family is a Cambodian family. They're very simple people. They're actually nearly illiterate. This is one of the things that really drove me. They had no resources. And I should say, Pana is being kind of modest. One of the things that motivated me was that um, the moniker around York was, and this is even from the COs, that Pana is, is somebody that doesn't belong here. I think there's two cases in particular I'd just like to mention. There was a girl in this mirrored Pana's case. She was a 17-year-old senior from Cheshire. She came from an upper-middle-class family. Her mom was a nurse. She hid her pregnancy. She threw the baby in the trash. And 
it was almost a perfect crime. They tracked it down because there was part of a credit card in it. And um, she would not have gone to prison, except at that time it was a famous prom mom case. And the lawyer said it was very difficult. He's going to have to tell this girl she was going to have to do time at, at York. Mm-hmm. She spent seven months there. Mm-hmm. And in the other case that that really it w- quite, quite an impact that I think may have helped her in her clemency was that there was a case at uh, North Haven in 1988, and this girl was 19, uh, an upper-middle-class family, and she hid her pregnancy and had the baby in the woods across the street and left it there and just checked on it every day, and it naturally died. And like a lot of these girls, she denied it, and they uh, finally were able to you know, verify that it was her baby and she got her sen- her uh, sentence was suspended, so she never she did community service, never went to prison. So in you know stark contrast upon us, so the, our sample is so small, you can't you know you want to say well you know in Danbury did they think this was sort of a primitive family or something? But I, I don't know. You don't know what the subconscious why she got this extraordinary sentence. Plus, she had a, a bond of $750,000. These other girls had no bond at all. All right. We are talking about the case of Panacrom, but we're also talking about um, neo-infanticide in a much more general way, neonaticide, excuse me, uh, in a much more general way. And we will talk about more that more when we come back. Michelle Oberman, a professor of law at Santa Clara University School of Law and the co-author with Cheryl Meyer of When Mothers Kill, Interviews from Prison, uh, will be joining us to talk about this phenomenon itself and how it perhaps differs from other somewhat comparable offenses. This is me again in 2017 talking about this show in 2016. I do want to say one more time, we were lucky enough to win a very major public radio award called the Prindy for this show. Um, we knew this show was a bit of a risk. We knew that certain people would probably find it hard to listen to the story of Pena Krom, and some of them might wonder whether her story deserved an airing. I mean, the, the enormity of what she did makes it a very problematic story. But we also thought it would, was an important story to be told. We kind of think of ourselves sometimes on the Colin McEnroe show as the show of last resort. Like you can't get anybody else to do this show. Maybe we'll do it. Uh, this was one of those shows. It felt like a bit of a hot potato, but also one worth really spending some time with. And we were gratified at the time that we did it. Uh, we're certainly glad to get the Prindy. We hope that you are obviously enjoying is not quite the right word, but we hope that you're finding what you're hearing today enlightening. All right. Let's go back again to 2016. 
So we're back. Uh, we'll be talking in just a second to Michelle Oberman, a professor of law at Santa Clara University School of Law and the co-author with Cheryl Meyer of When Mothers Kill, Interviews from Prison. Uh, joining me in studio right now is Pana Kram, who was recently released uh, from the York Correctional Institute in Niantic. She's the newest member of the Safe Haven Working Group. In the final segment of today's show, we're going to tell you about the Safe Haven Program. It's a very, very important program. Uh, it's more people need to know about it. Um, if, in fact, Pana had known about this, uh, we probably would be telling a very different story, if any story at all right now. Uh, also with us uh, in studio is uh, Doug Hood, uh, former physician's assistant in uh, neurology at Yale, uh, now uh, pursuing a career uh, investigating criminal injustice cases. He was one of the primary advocates for Panna uh, after she got her 18-year sentence, uh, was commuted, uh, and she was released recently. She served a little bit less than 10 years of that 18 years, which is, as we've been saying, way out of proportion to the way these um, these cases typically go. Doug, um, I'm going to start with you here just for a second. We've talked about this a little bit already, but I want to just kind of go through, um, and, and if Michelle joins us, I'm sure she'll want to elaborate. There is kind of a pattern here, right? There's, you know, there's, if you hear about uh, a neonaticide, um, you can fill in a lot of the blanks pretty easily and, and not be too wrong. The first thing you're going to find out probably is that there is some kind of isolation for these young girls that are, you know, between, you know, they're either teenage or in their very, very early 20s. And there's some kind of isolation going on, right? There's some way in which maybe they don't have the full set of social connections. That's true. Now, there is a dichotomy here uh, between what I call and what the literature calls the premeditated cases and the cases that are not premeditated. So there are some in which the women are older, they've had pregnancies before, and this is not anything new to them. So there's a very concerted effort on their part to get rid of the baby. But what we're looking at is what you talked about. It, it involves you know, Pana's type of demographic, and that is the young, single, this is a first pregnancy, isolated. Sometimes there's a, a cultural taboo about it, uh, lonely, delivers on their own, uh, denies the pregnancy. And yes, there's a clear pattern on this, and the psychologists have studied this, and, and the Commonwealth countries are way ahead of us on, on, on this matter. Hannah, when you were pregnant, how, how was that for you? How did you feel when you were pregnant? In some of these cases, the young girls are almost in a state of denial that they are pregnant. That seems to crop up in some cases. How was that for you? I completely agree with that. Um, I was very much in denial. Um, and the ways in which I dealt with it, I isolated myself because I felt very alone. And I knew that what I had done was very irresponsible. And I created this divide between myself and other people because I felt like I did something wrong, so I can't relate to other people because they can't empathize with me. They are on the right track. They're they're doing what they have to do, and I didn't. And that's one of the reasons why I couldn't ask for help because I just felt like no one would understand me and that people would only criticize me because teenage pregnancy alone is, is you know, or at the time um, was known to have a very bad stigma. Just walking around the high school um, was very embarrassing because I would get looks all the time and people would would whisper all the time and I just knew that they were just saying really bad things about me so I just felt very guilty and felt very bad that I was again very irresponsible 
um, and didn't take care of myself. So. Do you think that also, I mean, okay, there's whatever whatever set of norms or stigmas might have existed within your high school, but I, I would assume also within the Cambodian culture, Cambodian refugee uh, culture in America, I assume that's got its own set mm-hmm. of rules and ideas. I don't know if you can say anything about that. Absolutely. Um, typically in, in our culture, for the women at least, um, you know, we're expected not to not to engage in such activities before marriage. Again, I was caught in this cross between trying to fit in with the American culture, but yet also um, practice traditional culture at home. Um, so if my friends were doing something, you know, I wanted to do it too, but it was very difficult for me to do because, you know, I grew up in a strict household. I grew up in a strict culture. Um, and there were just so many expectations that um, we were expected to to live up to. And, and to me, it was hard because I was a various, very curious teenager, rather. It was very hard to, you know, even think about opening up to my, my family and saying, hey, you know, I'm stuck in a situation that I can't get out of um, because I just, you know, thought that they would disown me. Um, I thought that they would be extremely disappointed in me. I knew that I, you know, would let them down and and they'd be devastated to hear that I engaged in something like that. So it was very hard for me. You were carrying in two senses, right? You were carrying a child and you were carrying a secret, um, and you were pretty much carrying it alone. Was there any support? I mean, were, were there people at your high school who at least knew and could semi-talk to you about this? Or? Yeah, I mean, there were people, honestly, at my high school who um, approached me. So there were, you know, guidance counselors that approached me, and when they would ask me about it, you know, I, I denied it. I lied about it because I felt like if I got myself into the situation, I had to deal with it on my own. Again, I did not think that anybody would be able to help me because— I felt like I did something so terrible, and it was it was such a big issue um, that no one was going to be able to help me, and that I thought that if I admitted that I needed help to a staff member, that they would notify my parents um, because I was a minor. Um, so I just told them what they wanted to hear, basically, and just tried to hide it from everyone, not just my family. Doug Hood, as people in your life knew that you were working on this case, sometimes these cases are very hard for uh, people to understand. Um, It's maybe even a little unusual for a case like this one to excite sympathy on the part of somebody who's hearing about it or empathy uh, on the part of somebody who's hearing about it for the first time. Uh, I'm sure you've encountered that with people who find out you're working on a case like this one. What do you tell people? What do you tell people about why this isn't what they think it is? Yeah, you're exactly right. This is a real issue because I look at it as sort of the the three P's. You got the police report, the prosecutor, and uh, the press. And so what is out there in the public forum is what the press prints, which is usually what the prosecutor says. And the prosecutor gets this from the police report, which is I feel very biased against them. So immediately you're trying to defuse where they think this girl murdered a baby. I have no sympathy for her. And it takes you a very long, exhausted explanation to get the real story out. And the real story to you is what? I mean, when you, when you tell people that story, I, I mean, I've been reading and thinking about this for tw- just 24 hours. You've been living with this since 2012. What's the story that you tell people so that they'll understand it differently? Um, you know, I, I guess I just try to get them to understand, you know, what Pana was saying, that she was under this immense pressure, young, naive girl, uh, 
And not only did she not have her family support, the school knew about it and kind of let her down. The boyfriend threatened her. Uh, she had nowhere to turn, and she was really trapped and ended up with a crisis in the bathroom. Um, I, I try to get them to to understand that, and I think even as males, we it's hard for us to even comprehend that. One thing that I've been thinking to myself today, and actually, I'll, I'll, we're going to add Michelle Oberman to the um, conversation. Uh, maybe we, it'll come up as we're talking. As I said uh, before, Michelle Oberman, professor of law at Santa Clara University School of Law. Uh, she has written about this uh, and studied this phenomenon extensively uh, and is the co-author of uh, When Mothers Kill, Interviews from Prison. Um, Michelle Oberman, thanks for joining this conversation. Thanks for having me. So we've been talking a lot with Panacrom uh, and with Doug Hood about the the fact pattern or, or the the set of behaviors that seem to repeat themselves over and over again uh, in neonaticide. Um, this is something you've really looked at a lot, um, and it really does seem as though it's a very different phenomenon than uh, you know what we sometimes think, sometimes think of uh, of as infanticide. In other words, this thing that happens within the you know really the first few moments after birth, certainly the first uh, twenty four hours, it it just seems like it's its own syndrome. Can you talk a little bit about that? What if it if it is its own syndrome? What is it? Well, the word syndrome is sort of a medical word, and I'm I'm not okay. a doctor, but I can tell you as a as a lawyer and a professor who studied this phenomena over the course of the past um, 20 years or so um, that what you see is a very consistent pattern of girls who. Um, ignore or, or deny the um, fact that their pregnancy is progressing. And in fact, you've got other people in their lives who are, in one way or another, usually complicit in the ignoring or denying. So the girls are very isolated um, and are um, typically also socially immature. And so they don't, they do a lot of magical thinking, the kind of thing that teenagers do, where they think short term, like maybe it's going to go away, maybe it's not so real. Um, maybe, uh, you know, maybe I'm not pregnant. Um, and they don't do the long-term thinking that adults typically do where they say, okay, I'm going to need a plan here because in a certain number of months, I'm actually going to have a baby. Um, and the fact that nobody else seems to notice that there or to ask them about or to engage in planning around their pregnancy actually compounds that denial. Um, one of the most bizarre, I think, and yet most consistent facts in these cases is that the girls have their babies thinking that they're going into the bathroom to have a bowel movement. Mm -hmm. So it's not kind of a, a thing that a person would plan, that any rational person would plan at least. It's not how we have babies in this country, but the girls don't recognize that they're even in labor. They go into the bathroom and their denial is so profound that they mistake the extreme pains of, of labor for a, a bowel movement. And to be fair, they're also usually in there for hours and nobody notices or comes to their assistance as well. So the, the isolation continues from the time where they very first start to recognize and wonder about pregnancy all the way through the end of, uh, and usually the, the quite traumatic and terrible end of having a baby unattended on a toilet. 
Michelle, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Doug earlier. Um, you've been working on these cases since the 1990s. I think it started when you were a public defender uh, in Chicago, uh, or when a public defender in Chicago, I guess, maybe asked you to become involved. Yeah. I would imagine at first, uh, you know, most human beings, when they hear a story like this one, they don't have a lot of empathy. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't think that the, this is something that they can even really wrap their minds around. Mm-hmm. You've been able to spend a lot of time with it. I'm sure you still encounter people like that. People hear uh, about the book that you wrote or the work that you've done, and they say, what, what are you talking about? I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. what do you say back? So I feel like, first of all, Americans generally have a desire to blame individuals for really complicated social ills. And I completely get that. Like when something complicated happens, we just want to find a person to pin it on and make it go away. And these crimes are uniquely horrific. I mean, it is the quintessential innocent victim. So I understand entirely that sense of like, okay, these crimes have to be committed by monsters. It's just so easy, though, to peel back the layers and see that there's blood on more than one set of hands in these cases. I mean, there's the boyfriends who know, who continue in many cases to actually have intimate relations and then say, well, they don't know or they didn't want to deal with it. There's the parents who touched rock-hard bellies but you know, ignored the fact that the rock-hard belly is a sign of pregnancy, right? It's not, I mean, you know, there's nothing, there's no mistaking the belly of a, of a person who's pregnant. Um, there's the, the teachers, there's the, the neighbors, there's all, people who I wouldn't in any sense ex- expect to be criminally liable. Um, but at the same time, when we talk about why these crimes happen, you start to see like, oh, it's more complicated than just a girl who deliberately went out and got pregnant and elected to hide her pregnancy and elected to deliver the baby on a toilet, right? The, once you run it through the sorts of deliberate actions we associate with first-degree murder, the story doesn't hold up. I mean, there's just none of the, the premeditation, the willfulness, the deliberation that accompanies your average first-degree murder. What you see instead are, you know, just, you know, situations that reasonable people wouldn't have engaged in, which is the hallmark of maybe an involuntary manslaughter, but not at all of a first-degree murder. Right. So there's this classic landmark study in the 1970, the psychiatrist Philip Resnick, who uh, looked at neonaticides and compared them to mothers who kill older children. And they found they were sort of really, really different, that the, the mothers who kill older children are frequently psychotic, depressed, suicidal, uh, exhibiting lots of signs of mental uh, or psychiatric dysfunction. And they just you don't see that with uh, with the, the, the neonaticide cases. And let me just, I don't know, I was doing a lot of the reading in the um, anthropological and, and psychiatric research about this today. And one thing that rang very true to me, and actually, you know, it, it, when you when we even posted the fact that we were doing this show on Facebook, uh, most people were overwhelmingly supportive about the fact that we were doing it. But there were some people who had some issues with it. One thing I said to them is, you should understand, first of all, that you are the product of something like this, that if you go back far enough in your human family tree, uh, you get to a place where, in fact, this was a basic kind of human behavior, a kind of triage. 99% of our evolutionary history was spent in hunter-gatherer tribes that were in very exposed conditions, and that somewhere in our wiring, in the in our in our basic neurological wiring, there probably still is this tripwire that can be tricked. And when it was tricked back, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, it was often 
a young mother who was alone, who was delivering a baby without help, who didn't have a male, a mate paired up with her to support her and secure resources. Uh-huh. That, that this may be something, I mean, we don't know what it's like to be Panna. We don't like to, we don't know what it's like to have walked in our shoes, but it, this may be something that almost anybody's capable of doing if the right set of circumstances wow. combine to activate that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, it's, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and again, it's a supreme act of empathy to be able to place yourself in, in a situation where you could imagine being that isolated and that vulnerable. Um, and, I, and I do think that that is an accurate depiction from the, from the women with whom I've worked um, of how they see the world. And it's rightly or wrongly. I mean, for many of these girls, they believe that if they have the baby, they will be exiled from their families and really sent to the margins of their community. So even girls that are in families that would seem to be loving families believe that if their parents found out, A, that they had had sex, and B, that they were pregnant out of wedlock, they would disown them. And, you know, later on in these cases, you often hear from parents saying, oh, my gosh, we wouldn't have responded that way, and we would have welcomed our our child and our grandchild into our lives. But what's important is not what they say in retrospect, but how the girls feel and what they do with those emotions, which is, again, very quintessentially adolescent. They they panic and they believe that they have to keep it a secret and they believe that they will not be accepted and that they're actually at an impasse. They don't know what to do. The other thing that's actually um, important in these cases to understand exactly where the girls are is also the, the sense of their isolation um, leading them to choose not to have an abortion. So for most of these girls, they understand that they're living in a country in which if they have the money, they could get an abortion. But their isolation is such that they somehow feel like that baby is a, is, a, is a beacon of hope. It's somebody who might actually love them and who they could love. And so their paralysis becomes both, a, I don't want to have an abortion. I don't want to kill this, this possibility for hope and love. And yet I can't imagine having the baby because I don't have the support and I don't have a job and I don't have a place to live and my family will kick me out. And it's that just if you want to call it like a, an absolute storm of emotions that leads them to day after day not make a plan, not find a resource, not not reach out, or or really not have an adult in their, in their lives or even a friend in their lives reach out to say, here, like, let, let's make a plan here. Let's, let's figure out how we can make this work because this is real. Well, we're in the next segment going to talk about, uh, and Panna in particular wants to talk about a program that exists uh, that can make a difference, that will make a difference to, for a lot of people in this situation. But Panna, as we're, uh, you know, ending this conversation, I feel like we've been talking about you without talking with you. I know a lot of this probably rings true, that you were in many ways imprisoned in a story that you were telling yourself about what was going on and what would go on uh, if things came out a certain way. And I assume now you know you're reunited with your family it probably wasn't really the real story. It was the story you were telling yourself. Absolutely. I had assumed that, you know, people were going to react one way when when really, um, like Michelle said, they would have reacted another way. But again, it was just that fear and that desperation that, you know, again, nobody would understand me and, and people would just criticize me and they would hate me for what I did. And they'd just be so mad and so disappointed that, you know, I just, again, assumed that they would not be supportive. And that was a story that I was telling myself because now, almost 10 years later, I know that I could have went to someone and someone would have helped me. Whether if it was in my family, at school, friends or whomever, um, someone would have helped me. 
We're going to take a break. Uh, we're not going to have anywhere near as much time as I would like to to talk about some of the resources that do exist, uh, with means of support. But Panda wants to tell you about something called Safe Haven. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. You can hear all our shows on wnpr.org slash Colin or on Stitcher, iTunes, or TuneIn. On tomorrow's show, our pop culture roundtable, The Nose. Now, back to Colin. I have to do a very special shout out because, in fact, when Doug Hood and Wally Lamb first approached us with this, I think that maybe the first email came into me. I started reading it, sharing it with Betsy Kaplan. I have three amazing producers here, Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol and Josh Nalea. And Wolfie, of course, is our technical producer. Uh, and they all have these incredible strong suits. But I knew right away I was going to be reading this email to Betsy. And I got about halfway through it. She said, we're doing this show. Uh, and you have to have a producer who can do this show, can make it work and talk to everybody and make them understand what kind of show we want it to be. So very lucky to have Betsy Kaplan uh, here to do this. Um, when I was getting ready for the show today, I ran into an old friend in the parking lot, uh, Pam Sawyer, former state representative. Re- representative. I don't think I really understood until uh, I knew that we were going to do this show what her involvement was. She's been involved with legislation to create something called Safe Haven. And Pam, I'm going to let you kind of take over here and uh, tell people what Safe Haven is. It's, we should say first, it's something you did not know existed, though, though it did exist at the time. Right. Um, it was um, initiated into um, effect, I believe, in the year 2000. But the safe havens law would have saved my life and, and my baby's life because it's a law that, that protects both the mother and the child. Um, so, you know, essentially what the law is, is if a mother, um, you know, decides that she can't keep her baby and, and um, she doesn't want to take the abortion route or the adoption route, she can drop or anyone, um, the father of the baby, um, family member, could drop the baby off at any emergency room at any Connecticut hospital and remain completely anonymous. And you have the option to say, you know, I want to utilize the safe haven law or, or you don't necessarily have to say anything at all. But again, you are protected. Um, uh, your identity is protected. And that's what I was worried about because, you know, I, I was worried that I would get back to my friends or my family. And the safe haven, the safe havens law would have absolutely turned this story completely around. As of yesterday, I attended my first meeting in Hartford at the uh, Legislative Office Building with the Safe Havens Working Group. It was my first meeting, um, and I was very excited to, to just sit in and, and listen to you know, all the ideas that, that we all kind of came up with to um, really raise awareness and spread the word about this law that no one knows about, especially the younger generation, because I, you know, even through Project Rap at York Correctional, I would ask the high school students, do you guys know what the Safe Havens Law is? And they had no idea what it was. And I, I just feel like the younger generation um, should know about it um, because obviously neonaticides happened in the teenage community primarily. So I don't know. Again, I, I thought it was very, very important to kind of start that in prison and, and absolutely continue this while out of prison now. Um, Michelle Oberman, do you know how many states have anything like this? The majority of states actually do have safe haven laws, and and Pan is absolutely right that there's been almost no publicity around them. So this is sort of what I meant when I said earlier, boy, we really like to blame individuals for complicated social problems. And if we took seriously the promise of a safe haven law, we would recognize that without a lot of publicity to the 
generation of kids most likely to find themselves in this situation, the laws have very little chance of making a difference. And I think that actually if we implemented a really aggressive public awareness campaign around it, that even in the talking about the idea of a safe haven, you'd find girls in uh, in distress in situations like Panna's feeling like maybe there'd be a trusted adult to whom they could confide their situation. In other words, it wouldn't get to the point that they found themselves in the bathroom with a baby trying to figure out where to take the baby and what to do. Right. So if you imagine, for example, a middle school health teacher talking about safe haven in the context of a sexual education class or even just a health class, then what you'd have is a person announcing herself as safe. And so a friend of a girl who's worried might go up and say, you know, I'm a little bit worried about my friend. I think that she might be pregnant or she's told me she's pregnant and nothing is going on. And all it would take is one person saying, I understand that this might be going on with you and I'm here to help, right? So even if it never got to the point of the baby being dropped on the steps of the hospital or the police station or the fire station or wherever the safe haven was, just the awareness of the need for a safe haven might prevent these cases. Penna, we just have like two minutes left or or so. I think probably people want to know what's out there for you now to make sure that you're okay. You've been through an adult life that isn't like anybody else's. Um, does Safe Haven provide you with kinds of the kinds of support you need now? Everybody that um, I'm kind of surrounded by now provides me the support because um, they, you know, obviously now I have nothing to hide, so they know, you know, where I was, and, you know, I'm pretty sure that they are aware of some of the challenges that I've had to face while in prison and transitioning out. But, you know, I, I, I speak to, to various social workers, um, psychiatrists about my experience or, you know, before my incarceration and even during my incarceration and, and after my incarceration. So, um, and the prison also, before I left, provided me with reentry resources that I could utilize as well. So, you know, they, they researched different organizations or even clinics around that, you know, I could find that might provide me with more information about where I can get help from everything that has to do with clothing or even just mental health services. So mm-hmm. to have someone to talk to. So, What do you think you'll be doing in five years? Definitely still working with the Safe Havens Working Group. But I think in five years, my goal is to spread the word about this issue and spark a conversation so that people don't necessarily have to sympathize with the moms who commit neonaticide, but understand understand that this is a social issue that happens in society and we can't deny it. We have to do something about it that will help um, these young moms. I want to thank everybody who participated in what I think was a remarkable conversation, certainly not like any I've ever had before. Panna Krom, former inmate at York Correctional Institute in Niantic and the newest member of the Safe Haven Working Group. It's her story uh, that this show revolved around. Doug Hood, a former physician's assistant in neurology at Yale, now pursuing a career investigating criminal injustice cases. Michelle Oberman, professor of law at Santa Clara University School of Law and co-author with Cheryl Meyer of When Mothers Kill, interviews from prison. Uh, also, uh, thanks to Pam Sawyer, who's sitting out in the green room right now and showed up to support Panna, uh, which I thought was a very lovely gesture as well. Uh, and so thanks also to my staff. We'll be back tomorrow with the nose. <laughs>